Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to an election special podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I'm joined by our Political Editor George Eaton and our Editor Jason Cowley. George, it's the start of the short campaign. Um, How has it gone so far? Well, you've had the Tories sticking very much to their core message, which is on the economy, um, as is now uh, known by all the voters of Britain, probably. They have a long-term, long-term economic, economic plan, plan. And they're very keen to tell you all about it. Um, Labour, perhaps surprisingly, has been in slightly foreign territory, uh, focusing this week on, on business, actually, and on the threat posed to British companies by the possibility of EU withdrawal under a Conservative government as a result of the promised referendum and launching their business manifesto. Um, and some people were surprised they hadn't led on the NHS or living standards issues, which are much more salient and on which they have a big advantage over the Conservatives. Um, I think one reason why they did that was because it was a preemptive attempt to limit the damage from future hostile interventions by business leaders. And as if to prove that, yeah. of course, we've had this letter to the Daily Telegraph signed by more than 100 business leaders, um, which the Conservatives uh, are obviously delighted about. Well, Jason, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because we have we were expecting a kind of pre-bottle, as, as George says. It's, it was good of Labour that they got their response in early, because at some point they must have known this was coming. Do you think it's going to sway many voters seeing these business leaders on the Telegraph? I don't think it will sway many. I confirm prejudices. But it's it's a sign of Labour's problems that they had to get, what did you call it, a pre-buttle? A pre-buttle, yeah. They had to get a pre-buttle in because they ought to have significant business leaders supporting them as Blair had when he won landslides for the Labour Party. David Miliband said to me a couple of years ago when he guest edited the New Statesman, I think 2012, mm, wasn't it? Around then, yeah. Never again should we go into a general election without significant business support. And sure enough, in 2015, they're going into a general election without significant business support. But that comes back to what Ed Ball said to you, George, in your interview, which is that, you know, that language of predators and producers that you hear from Ed Miliband, you won't hear from him. 
He was, he and Chukramuna have been the two Labour politicians who've been tasked with going and speaking to the city and to business. How successful have they been at doing that? Well, they haven't been very successful at uh, converting business leaders in, into Labour supporters, as we're, as we're seeing now. I think they've had some success in the margins at persuading business leaders that Miliband is not as radical as some of his rhetoric sometimes suggests. I think there was a, sometimes a fear that some of the more leftist policies that he'd outlined were just the beginning and that he'd go even further in office or there was more to come. And I think they have also won a hearing on EU membership. Uh, so someone like Martin Sorrell now seems genuinely torn over who to support because he doesn't like policies such as the mansion tax, such as a 50p tax rate, uh, tougher banking regulation. But he recognises probably the biggest threat to the British economy and to firms is, is an EU exit because it's Britain's largest trading partner. And then I think they've been able to impress some business leaders with their policies on infrastructure investments, on uh, a more skilled workforce. This is something British companies have long complained about and, and apprenticeships. But uh, the big picture really is that you know, business is lining up with the Conservatives. And, and for Labour, even in, in a post-crash era, when voters are more sceptical of business than in the past, they're more hostile to them. The general impression that it risks creating is that you can't trust Labour to manage the economy. And Jason, do you think that's a danger here for the Conservatives, that as much as it, you know, they, they need to have business leaders on their side, it risks confirming people's worst preconceptions of the Conservatives in the same way that, you know, if the mirror had splashed this morning with, you know, union leaders back Labour, that might not necessarily have been the best thing for Labour. No, I absolutely agree, Helen, and, and that's why um, the polls are deadlocked and don't seem to be moving. I mean, the Conservatives just reaffirm this idea that they're the political wing of the City of London with their big, big hedge fund backers and so on and so forth. So I think it does. I think it, what I said at the beginning, it reaffirms people's positions and prejudices. I think part of the problem for Labour, though, and George is right, Ed Balls and Chuka and others are pro-business. And um, they speak a different kind of language from their leader. I mean, Ed, Ed has come at, come at a lot of these problems from a kind of abstract, highly theoretical position influenced by many of the people around him, such as Stuart Wood, academics who really have little practical experience of business and wealth creation. I mean, of course, to redistribute wealth, you have to create it in the first place. And I, I would have liked to have heard some of that kind of language from Miliband sooner. I mean, Chuka, Chuka Amuno is beginning to use that kind of language, but Ed isn't. And some senior Labour MPs have said to me about Ed Miliband, the mood music has been all wrong. Mm. About, about business. I mean, one, one wishes to reform the worst excesses of the banks. But when we talk about business, you know, we talk about this monolith, mm. but there are many different businesses. I mean, New Statesman is a kind of business. <laughs> Just a Although kind one, of business. one heavily reliant on our, uh, the generosity of our owner, but it's a business and we, we're beginning to run it as a business. The banks are, and the hedge funds are businesses, mm. but so is the small shopkeeper and the, the female fashion designer. I mean, these are all businesses, the mm. internet startup, and Labour somehow needed to kind of channel that sense of what business is, the possibilities of business, rather than warning about the dangers and, and the rapacity of, of big business. And to go from one sore spot from, for Labour to another one, um, George, can we talk quickly about Scotland? Where is the, was the polling going on that at the moment? So... Um, the most recent one, actually, not as bad for Labour as some others, suggesting that um, uh, the SNP gains maybe something closer to 40 rather than up to 50. Um, but the, the, the biggest opponent for them, as, as Scottish MPs 
say is time that you've had this uh, huge swing since the referendum where people who voted yes want to stick with the the SNP and even some who uh, voted no uh, sort of feel slightly guilty about it now and perhaps feel they have a duty to support the, the Scottish nationalists. Um, and that means um, you know, the SNP have a huge uh, electorate with which to work and for Labour to unwind that, to unravel all of that is, is very tough. Um, most people think Jim Murphy's been uh, made a good start, that he's, he's certainly an energetic leader. Scottish Labour is much more visible and nimble than it was under under the... Under Although the, George, he's quite, he's quite tainted in Scotland by associations with the Iraq war and the old Blairite wing of the, of the party. I mean, we in London often look, look at Jim and admiringly and think he, Jim Murphy and think he's doing an excellent job. When I speak to the left on the ground in, in Scotland there, they're rather sceptical of him, indeed, rather scathing. Mm. Isn't, Helen, you've just come back from mm. some a few days reporting in Scotland. What, what did you pick up? What, what sort of mood and where were you? I think, well, I, so I've been, into, been to Glasgow and I arrived just at the tail end of SNP Spring Campaign Conference. And there's a really interesting split opening up, which I'm sure they won't like this comparison, but it reminds me very slightly of, of UKIP in the sense that some people absolutely love the message. They're really fully paid up. You know, this is really re-energised them into politics. But there is also a, a core of people who are deeply worried and alienated by the SNP's message. Um, you know, you hear people sort of, t- when you say, well, what was, what's it like at these, these big speeches, these big rallies? Half the people really love the enthusiasm around politics. And then you hear these phrases like, well, it's a bit like a cult. It's like mm-hmm. a, you know, one of these mega churches. It's, you know, it's, it's got this sort of kind of slightly evangelical sense about it and then you walk into sort of Waterstones in Glasgow and a big wall of Alex Salmon's face with the dream will never die <laughs> faces you down and I think there is a certain feeling among some people some people I spoke to on the doorstep said you know Nicola Surgeon she's getting above herself uh, and I think there's certainly some 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 worries about the fact that Alex well you'll know this better than me Jason having interviewed him that Alex Salmon is really enjoying his his role now as a kind of big you know, big man, essentially, and they are slightly worried that this is the, that pride is going to come before a fall. Yeah, I mean, Alex is, um, he said to me, if you don't enjoy the game of politics, you shouldn't be in politics. But also he said it, what the SNP have, and perhaps the other parties don't have it, is a cause and an objective and a, and a mission. And it's that, what, as you say, that fires their zeal and their commitment George mentions that Labour may not, or the SNP may not end up with 50 seats. They could end up with 40. But George, that would be extraordinary. They've only got six at the moment. Labour have 41 it would be, out of 59. It would be extraordinary. But with the SNP, we've learned to expect the extraordinary in mm. some ways. I mean, what happened in 2011 when they mm. won a majority in the Scottish Parliament was extraordinary. Which we predicted, actually. We did. Um, but it was so such an extraordinary result that even Alex Salmond didn't expect them to do to do that well, even on the night when he was being told that they'd won seats which had been Labour for, for generations. What I can't see, though, so George, is the 45% who voted yes. Why would why would any of those move over to back a unionist party at a Westminster election? That's, that's not going to happen. You also mentioned that some people may have buyer's remorse and yeah. may, may be regretting having voted no and now have moved across. There may be also those who, who want the Westminster parties to uphold the promises that they made to the Scottish people in the final week, and they they themselves also might move across to the SNP. Salmon said to me that he expects the SNP to win seats on 35% of the vote. I asked him about tactical voting, will the unionist mm. parties or those who support unionist parties end up voting against the SNP in certain constituencies, even in the one that he's standing in mm. himself, Malcolm Bruce's old seat. He thought not, actually. He was quite confident they could win on 35% of the vote. 
Well, surely they're going to get 45%, aren't they, in many seats? Well, you do hear a lot of chatter, though, that, that and I'm not. I'm obviously from opposition activists who's in, whose interest it is to say that, to say that there is, a, a, as much as there is an SNP vote, there is an, also an anti-SNP tactical vote. And I think that's why it will be very interesting to look at some of those Lib Dem constituencies. When we know the Lib Dems are going to collapse, the people in those constituencies know the Lib Dems are going to collapse, where do they go? Do they stay with them or do they jump to Labour or do they jump to the SNP? And I think those are some of the hardest constituencies to predict, actually. I think they are. I mean, Michael Moore's seat in the in the Scottish borders is, is looking like a three-way margin, mm. isn't it, with the SNP now? coming up very strongly mm. to challenge Labour and indeed the Tories would hope to win that seat. I mean, would, would the Labour voters swing behind a Conservative candidate? Mm. I don't think they would, no. would they? In Scotland, no. it's not going to happen. But whatever happens, if we end up with 35 to 40 SNP MPs, it's a new world at Westminster. Well, I think that's fascinating. I talked to um, Mari Black, who's the SNP candidate in, in Paisley, and, she, and I, you know, I said, do you, do, you, do you kind of imagine what it would be like on your first day in Westminster? How, how much hostility there'll be to you? And, in, you know, the West, you know, Westminster is very clubbable in some senses and won't take very kindly to this idea that people are coming down with wrecking intentions, really. Mm. And she said, well, you know, I'm not there to, to make friends. I'm there to, to represent my constituency and do the best for Scotland. But I think that could be a very interesting... There will be, I think, a, I don't know where you feel about the stories, I think there will be a certain amount of hostility because it's, see, it's seen that the SNP are coming to sort of break Westminster, essentially. Yes, and, and the United Kingdom. Yeah. Mm. And they are seen, the way the Conservatives speak about them, it's almost as if they're illegitimate. But of course, this, is, it would, this would be democracy in action. And uh, English Conservatives can hardly complain about having a large SNP contingent at Westminster when... Scotland for for decades had uh, conservative governments that it, it, it didn't vote for. And I also think that's a very foolish thing to do tactically because if there's anything that's going to drive people to vote SNP where they've got a chance, it's the feeling that that will upset the Tories. Like that's you know, that's just exactly what, what they want. And the, the so-called Conservative and Unionist Party are doing doing more potential damage to the union than any other party at the moment mm. in, the, in the way they're seeking to demonise the SNP. Well, on that slightly consensual note, then I suppose we'll say thank you. But hopefully, Jason, we can lure you back now it's election time. So during the election, I always get excited during yeah. when elections are coming, Helen. So I'll, I'll return from time like to time. A, it's like the World Cup, isn't it's like it, the really? World Cup for me. I like big events. Yeah. OK. Well, thank you very much. joined by Harry Lambert, editor of May2015.com, and Stephen Bush, the editor of The Staggers, to talk about polls. What else, Harry? Why else would we have got you in? Um, tell me, so um, <laughs> Lord Ashcroft has... Okay, well, yeah, okay. Well, let's, let's talk about feminism. <laughs> no, I won't make you do that. Um, let's talk about these Ashcroft polls that right. have come in. So yep. he's polled eight seats. He has. What are the headlines from that? Um, well, these are eight seats which he has polled in the past. So he's now returning. Just a quick overview, if you don't. I haven't been following the polls as closely as I have. No one has been following the polls as closely as you have. Um, There are 650 seats in the UK and there are only about 150 which matter. We have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in the other 500. And so what Lord Ashcroft does is he polls all of these seats which matter, these 150. And he's now polled, I think, 146 of them. Um, And he's now returning, because he's been doing this for about a year now, spent a lot of money doing so. He's now returning to the seats which he polled early on. So the ones today were Lib Dem Tory marginals and a couple of Labour Lib Dem marginals. So he's giving us a sense of how well the Lib Dems are doing and whether they're going to lose more than half their seats, which is what national polls suggest. And spoiler alert, are they going to? We don't still quite know. I mean, it looks like the the estimate we all had which is the Lib Dems would win about 25, 30 seats. It still looks pretty much like that's pretty much accurate. It's a very mixed bag. So four of these eight polls 
the Lib Dems are holding on to their seats. Three of them, they're losing them to the Tories. And in one most important poll, Sheffield Hallam, Nick Clegg's seat, the Lib Dems are trailing by two to Labour. But that's within the margin of error, right? So the margin of error in that kind of sample size is about three points either way. It's about three points. I mean, we can get complicated on a margin of error, but let's say three points. That's a good rule of thumb. And then this other thing that keeps coming up is whether or not you prompt by name for the candidate. So the, I think the question's formulated something like, thinking about the people who are running in your area, or thinking about the parties that are running yeah. in your area, who are you going to vote for? But not thinking about, would you vote for Nick Clegg or, or you know, other constituency MPs that people Absolutely. have strong attachments to. And this is what the Lib Dems always come back to. They think that they do a lot better um, and they even have some private polling showing them doing better, which I know Stephen isn't a great fan of, uh, if you name the candidates. Um, there was some joking today about whether if you name Nick Clegg, given he's quite an unpopular figure, he'd actually do worse. But I think that's presumably the reason if you if you think that Nick Clegg would do worse, you name him, is because you think people are angry about, say, tuition fees or being part of the Conservative-led coalition. That's really going to carry across to the party as well. You're not going to think, I hate Nick Clegg, but those Lib Dems, what have they been up to these last couple of years? I quite like the sound of them. Right, it's hard to differentiate between the two things, but the only, the only real piece of evidence we have here is that Nick Clegg does do better in Sheffield Hallam when the voters are asked about your constituency and the candidates like to stand there so when he's alluded to if not named he does better he does about eight points better Stephen do you do you buy the it's going to be a Portillo moment on election night Paul Nick Clegg is going to be there probably saying sorry so so sorry the Liberal Democrats are sorry I think I mean it's definitely a plausible outcome the danger I think for the for the Labour candidate is that they they might have peaked too early there's a large pool of Tories in third who don't, yeah, who we can safely assume don't want Ed Miliband in number 10. I think Oliver Coppard, the Labour candidate's best bet, was to come through the middle, effectively. The earlier it looks like he has come through the middle, the more excited um, Labour activist students who are coming in from all over the country, because every Labour Party member who's a student wants to have helped take down Nick Clegg, the more of them who pour into the constituency, it's a little signal to every single Conservative who lives there, oh, I need to vote to save Nick Clegg. So yeah, the worry for Labour, I think, is they might have peaked too early. Harry, do you buy that? I think it's a really interesting idea, and I think what's going to... I mean, it, it, there's two sides to this, isn't it? On the one hand, you're going to have people flood, flooding into the seat now, trying to dethrone Clegg. Uh, and also what's interesting is, for a long time, the Labour Party didn't put any money into the seat, didn't put any resources into it, and I don't know how much they have started to do so, but they... They, they now might, and as Stephen says, you're going to have lots of students turning up and trying to help the candidate. But on the other hand, the Tories might now be galvanised. We talked a little bit about this idea about prompting for the candidate. So the incumbency effect, I know, is something about which you have strong feelings. So the conventional wisdom goes, there is a strong incumbency effect, particularly for Lib Dems. It really helps them. They're dug into seats where they have you know, council members mm-hmm. and they've been uh, you know, MP for a long time. Do you buy that? I do, because... The only thing we have to test this is Lord Ashcroft's polls, and they show, he asked two two questions in his polls. So initially he says, who do you vote for in a generic, abstract election? And then he says, and now thinking about the candidates likely to stand there, who do you vote for? And for Labour and the Tories, there's really no difference between those two questions. Um, First-time Tory MPs, despite uh, what people think, don't benefit from this, but the Lib Dems do, and they benefit in pretty much every single seat. They benefit from by about 10 points. And my final question is, are we paying too much attention to polls? There was a whole load of amateur drama last week after the um, the debates. 
um, about the idea that suddenly Ed Miliband's four points ahead and then we had another poll at weekend and Ed Miliband's three points behind, both of which are pretty close to being within the margin of error. So not to do Harry out of a job, Stephen, but are polls just rubbish? No, actually, I think the problem is people not paying enough attention to polls. If you were keeping track of all the poll movements, you would go, oh, neither of those results were surprising. The the bigger problem, actually, is, uh, and now I'm going to talk myself out of ever being hired by anyone other than taking a certain type of journalist who wanders in and goes, oh, look, that number looks interesting, and then checks out of polling for another week. And actually, yeah, what, what we need is more polls, because then they become self-correcting, more data, more information. And that's why our poll of polls is such a brilliant tool. That was good. That was very good like message. I like yeah. that. Yeah, that was great plug. <laughs> um, Stephen, for those of you who can't see Stephen, is drinking out of a Labour um, mug. But a better plan, a better future. So it's a very on message Labour mug. Yeah, not the controls on immigration. No, I, my controls on immigration is for tea. My better plan for a better future is for coffee. Because then I can go, I've got a better plan for a better future. A <laughs> cup of coffee. <laughs> Very nice. Right, so that's two bits of marketing. You've done excellent marketing for Matron Food and excellent marketing for Labour's excellent range of mostly good, one case, slightly dodgy mugs. Thank you very much, both of you. Hello, I'm Ian Stedman. Statesman's technology and science writer, and I'm here with John Gray, uh, who is a philosopher, writer in all kinds of things, and specifically the author of a new. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Book about freedom. It's called The Soul of the Marionette, a short inquiry into human freedom. And it, it isn't that long, but it is extremely dense. It's filled with a lot of extremely thought-provoking stuff about what it is to be a human and be free. You open with that that lovely sort of metaphor from um, Heinrich von Kleist. That's right. Yes, a 19th century German writer um, who talks about the, the the kind of freedom of the puppet at the end of the string. And I guess, do you want to talk about that? Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, one of the paradoxes of that wonderful uh, story of Kleist's is that the puppet in the story is admired um, for the... F- graceful spontaneity of its movements. Mm. In other words, it's admired for what seems like a kind of freedom, a graceful freedom in what it does that humans uh, can't emulate. Mm. And the reason humans can't emulate it, in the story, uh, the puppet is said to float above the earth almost um, uh, as if it wasn't subject to the law of gravity. Mm. And as the story plays out, it's very short but very profound, I think, um, and has many interpretations. But as the story plays out, it becomes clear that the the gravity from which the puppet is free is the burden of choice. Mm. The puppet does what it's required to do. There's no deliberation. There's no anxious uh, choosing between alternatives. Mm. It doesn't have freedom, freedom of choice. Um, and that seemed to me, and was intended by Kleist, as a very paradoxical 
notion, which is that the freedom that the puppet um, has is freedom from choice, mm. not freedom as a range of choices. Now, as you'll know, later in the book, I discuss some developments in robotics and artificial intelligence. And one of the interesting questions, which is often raised, is um, whether intelligent machines can have self-awareness mm. or even ultimately the kind of Blade Runner question. Yes. Uh, whether they can have freedom of will in the sense in which humans think they have freedom of will. Yes. And what I argue throughout the book is, I guess, is it's contribution, if you like, to a more philosophical question. We can come back later to what it means for freedom for us humans. But as I argue that if you accept the Darwinian view according to which humans, we ourselves, came about by chance, and we ourselves are, so to speak, randomly uh, uh, created uh, intelligent machines. Mm -hmm. We have souls. We, meaning by that, not necessarily in the religious sense, but in the sense of where self-reflective, self-aware, we have an interior life. Mm. And we do have the experience of um, choosing between alternatives, even if that experience is, is in some sense an illusion. And what I say in the book is that um, um, what's distinctive about human beings um, uh, among the animals that we know isn't um, morality, which there are some signs in humans, it isn't tool-making, it isn't language, it isn't any of these things. It's a certain kind of self-division. It's as if we've come about by chance in a way which contains inherent flaws. Mm. And I think those flaws uh, are part of what account for the kind of freedom we think we have. Yes. And if that happened in the case of us, why couldn't it happen in the case of machines that we've invented but which then go on as they get more complex, to reprogram themselves or to suffer from flaws we haven't considered or anticipated uh, uh, and to be subject to types of evolution the way we were. Why couldn't machines, um, even if they were programmed for other purposes uh, by, by us, develop the types of um, self-awareness and even of the experience of um, freedom that we have? Now, where that kind of fits in to the original question of the book, which is what kind of freedom is it that we want, you know, what do people want when, when they want freedom? I think the, the, the goal of a kind of freedom from choice, which sounds so paradoxical to us now, is actually one that has always attracted human beings and still does. Mm. And this comes out to some extent in um, modern writers and modern thinkers, such as um, Ray Kurzweil. Um, I often mention him because I think he's a very important thinker. People say, isn't he marginal? Well, you can't be marginal and director of engineering at Google. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if that's marginal, I don't know what's central. Yes. Immense resources, immense trust in them, and a very brilliant man. And what he, uh, although I disagree with him fundamentally in many ways, what he and others like him, transhumanists uh, or human enhancement people and many others are interested in doing, is using um, new developments in artificial, in artificial intelligence and other uh, revolutionary sciences to um, produce a higher type of mind, a kind of fusion of our natural human mind, mm. uh, so to speak, animal mind, yes, and a new mind which we develop uh, through artificial intelligence. Fuse them together to produce a mind which I think actually um, embodies an a this ancient idea of freedom from choice, because what 
they, uh, when they look at human beings, these thinkers find, as Kleist did in a certain kind of way, they find that human beings are stumbling, they're falling down all the time, they don't know what to do, uh, uh, we've got to get away, they're ignorant, they don't know what, why they're doing what they're doing or what the consequences of their actions will be. And they want to get away from that kind mm. of um, state of, um, as they would put it, unfreedom. I, on the contrary, and this is in a sense comes out at the end of the book, it's the whole book is, is an argument for this. I think that um, we are free in the only way that beings like us can be free. I think we should embrace our um, what they would think of as, our, as our, our unfreedom because that's the way we are and many very important um, forms of human creativity come from the fact that we don't know why we do what mm. we do. We don't know what the consequences of our actions are. We we are divided from ourselves. But actually, these uh, features, which from one standpoint are flaws, from their standpoint, you see, they'd be flaws. The puppet for them would be a kind of model of a higher, higher yes. type of freedom. For me, the puppet is a model of an inhuman freedom. Mm. Human freedom is much more like the freedom um, we're used to claiming human freedom. It may, I mean, choice may be an illusion. It may be that we don't always want more choice. But we, we cling deeply to the um, sense of agency that we have, mm. which involves the idea that we there are really alternatives open to us. And yet, there is still this deep appeal of a type of freedom in which... Uh, you know, in philosophy, you find it in Spinoza or Plato or even degree, even Socrates. That were, if we if we just had more knowledge, if we just knew the truth about ourselves and the universe, we wouldn't have to choose. We know what to do. Yes, I think that that type of knowledge is probably impossible. But in any case, I'm not. You know, I, I don't find it as an ideal, an ideal, an attractive idea. You almost warn warn people off that kind of idea in the, yes. in the book. I mean, you. you yes. Um, it's it's exactly. such a fascinating book because you cite such a wide range of thinkers and examples. Thank I mean, you. you have the golem the, uh, of Jewish mythology. You have Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. Um, you have thinkers like Isaiah Berlin. But you yeah. also have um, you mentioned Blade Runner. People like writers like Philip K. Dick. There's and a long like, section on Philip yes, K. yeah, Dick. and 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 a very interesting writer. Don't yeah, you agree? Yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. I, I just read um, Ubik for the first time yeah. the other day, and it's, it's amazing. I've never read a fiction writer who can cram so many fantastic ideas yeah. into what what are really kind of pulpy stories, but he yeah. just ideas. Are he used the pulpy stories for these incredibly radical, yeah, yeah, absolutely, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and subversive mm. ideas, which still are. Yeah, 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 um, and, and also this this idea of agency mm. is really. Um, I mean, this goes part of your whole philosophical project, I mm. guess, but it's part of that enlightenment uh, yeah. change where yeah. uh, the, the move towards um, freedom as being the expression of our inner free will. But mm. th that's really something that you just don't agree with, isn't it? Well, I try to avoid the strictly metaphysical questions of mm. whether there's free will or not, partly because they're so human-centered. Mm. As I say somewhere in the book, you know, people are, you know, have we got free will? Well, you know, why don't people ask, have the dolphins got free will? Or have the... <laughs> have the um, uh, gorillas got free will or 50 years from now or maybe even earlier have these replicants yes got free will yes i mean that in a sense again it was asked not by a philosopher but by not by a professional academic philosopher anyway but by philip k dick in mm. his wonderful novel do they dream of electric sheep which then became blade runner the movie and uh one of the great movies of all time partly because it's so rich with visionary Imageries, but it also expresses deep and unresolved 
questions and issues about mm. about ourselves. Is what makes us human the fact that we're conscious, or is it the fact that we think we can choose between alternatives? What is it? Uh, is there anything, in fact, which makes us uniquely human? Mm. You know, I tend to the view in there that uh, what makes us uniquely human are our flaws, but rather than wanting to eliminate our flaws, the flaws that, you know, if we eliminate our flaws, we eliminate ourselves. Yes. I find it odd that, you know, there are transhumanists who say we're tremendously committed to the human project, the human species, and so on, and yet they want to eliminate everything that, yes. to my mind, makes us the human <laughs> beings that they are. Would these, would these higher minds, would they love each other? Mm. Would they, uh, would they have experiences of beauty? Yes. Would they have mysterious experiences? You know, experiences which, epiphanies that we can't yeah. account for. We do. Yes. Would we lose all that with this higher type of knowledge? What, right? what is spiritualism to a replicant? It's, yeah, it's yeah. a strange question to ask. Yeah, it? yeah. Would replicants, I hadn't thought of that, that's very good. Would replicants think about an afterlife? Yeah. <laughs> the afterlife of replicants. I mean, that's one of the key things that, I mean, in the book I speculate, it's just a speculation, I can't prove it, um, uh, that... Um, one of the key differences between human beings, maybe the, the key difference, is that we're more aware of our mortality, perhaps even uniquely aware of our mortality mm. than other animals. Other animals, elephants gather around dead elephants, we know that. Kind of, but do they have a conception of their own mortality, mm. of having a finite lifetime? Seems doubtful. Yeah. Uh, um, we seem to be unique in that respect. And that, of course, generates all kinds of things because we want this finite lifetime to be meaningful. And because it's often cut off by diseases and just accidental or violent deaths and other things, and bereavement and many other factors, uh, pretty well all human beings have, or at least maybe not all human beings, but all human cultures, have um, developed ideas of the afterlife. So your yeah. music is supposing we did have these marionettes with souls, these robots that have um, developed souls by having, as it were, grit in the machine, dust in the machine has <laughs> yeah. produced a soul. Would they, when they got these souls, would they come up with speculations about an afterlife, which they would, might look forward to? Mm. Or they might fear, because the ancient Greeks actually feared the afterlife. Yeah. This is, this is something that you, you actually write about in the book in terms of the influence of Christianity yeah. on, um, I guess, grand narratives of mm. history mm. and the idea of progress, yeah. the inevitability of progress. Not inevitability so or, much, not strictly inevitability, but the idea that um, uh, the human species as a whole so to speak, can advance. Yes. Because if you approach the human species in a strictly impartial, scientific, naturalistic sense, the human species doesn't go anywhere. Mm. What happens is there are lots of different cultures, groups, forms of life, practices, all doing different things, different goals, different values. You know, we might want to take a stand against some of the things that, I mean, it might be, as it is to me, profoundly and deeply alien that something like... Um, ISIS could en enslave women or kidnap children and uh, throw gay people off the roof and all. So I want mm. to take a stand yeah. against that. I might say, well, that's, from my point of view, as I would say, completely barbaric. So we should t take a stand against that of some kind. Um, but it doesn't mean that the human species is going anywhere in particular or has any uh, kind of goal or built-in telos or to put it a different way going back to what you said about narratives doesn't mean that the history of the human species can be told as a story of redemption yes. which is the way nearly all liberal humanists or, or liberal atheists let's call them they yes. tell it they say yes there have been yeah. these terrible things in the past but we've learned from them you you wrote recently in the guardian yeah. uh, just a couple 
couple of weeks ago about uh, an essay about this yeah. and, and well uh, also Stephen Pinker yeah. um, who who famously um, his his recent book which um, I've uh, better angels of our nature better angels of our nature of course yeah um, one thousand pages more yes than... <laughs> it's uh, it's it's like a comprehensively uh, attempt to argue that yeah. violence war uh, oppression they are declining mm. within. The world, and, mm. and you wrote against that, which mm. I found very interesting because you. um, it, your argument kind of took the form of, as I took it, that those, those violences are mutating. Um, mm. So we may not have as many deaths on as many deaths, but yeah. violence and pain and hurt those are increasing, and um, even the shortening of life. Because one of the points I make in my critique is that there are many types of violence mm. that are lethal that don't produce immediate death. Yes. So, the... so if you're herded into or end up in some huge refugee camp in Syria mm. among the millions who've done, and if, let's say, you're a woman who's been raped or raped or someone, anyone, either gender, tortured or, or whatever, you've been kind of uprooted, um, you, you may not, when you enter the camp, be on the point of death, but your life may be cut short. Mm. You may have a shorter life than you would ever have, yes. otherwise have. Does that get into the... Uh, I know the other examples I give, I mean, if you're born as a child, an infant, in 40 years later in Vietnam, with defects which result from Agent Orange... Yes. 40 years before, do you get counted in the calculus? Does yes. your You know, even if your life is a short and painful one. So, uh, or to take a more everyday example, but a kind of poignant one, when one looks at the television now and sees in um, uh, Ukraine and... Uh, uh, and other parts of the world, you see often old people, often old women, living in basements mm. when their town has been semi-destroyed by the ongoing war. Ask yourself the question, where will those old ladies be two winters from now? Yes, exactly. I, 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 if the war goes on, they'll be dead. I, would they, m many of them anyway, will be dead, more than would have been dead. Now, did they get counted? They haven't been killed by a bullet. Mm. They haven't been, someone hasn't come in and sprayed them with machine gun bullets. Uh, they haven't necessarily been physically assaulted. But the upheaval in their lives and the deprivation of normal food in Norway have been such that it's shortened their life. Mm. So what I, what I think is that uh, although it's true that um, battlefield statistics, battlefield casualties are, have gone down, and I say contrary to him that that's partly because of the balance of terror, Yes, partly because in just nuclear weapons, yeah. etc., you know, they create between big yeah. powers that you know, so far they haven't done it for that reason. I mean, they don't. If there is a conflict between the US and Russia, it'll be a proxy war, as in Ukraine, Ukraine yes. also, almost certainly. I mean, could happen, you know. But so, actually, one of the points I make in the book that is that it, it didn't happen in the case of Cuba, mainly because of the courageous stand of one human being yes who was the um submariner yeah who, uh, soviet submariner who refused to take an order mm. if he hadn't take if he'd taken the order we might you know <laughs> exactly. all the figures all the pinkest That's figures the coin, would be the coin flip very yeah. very different mm. there might be 50 or 100 tens or even more millions different than they were so there are various reasons why um, battlefield statistics have um have, um, have fallen but really you know although statistics are important and I'm not saying I have nothing to say about them to me they're not crucial because um, uh, uh, I, what I maintain in that critique is that there are many aspects of the human cost of warfare that are incalculable mm. yes absolutely like these people who die before their time some won't some will be lucky or robust some of these old ladies you know they'll survive yes 
but more will die who wouldn't have died if yes. it hadn't been caught. But and, we don't and, know which. How and, can we find out? And also out? not warfare necessarily, of course, because yeah. you know, um, I, I, certainly not traditional. I, warfare. I, I read that um, that piece and, and thought of the events in the U.S. over the yeah. last few months in Ferguson yeah. and, and wherever you where you have very obvious systemic oppression against certain groups within society, yeah. in that case, African-Americans. Well, one of the points I make against Pinker is he says cruel punishments. Of, you know, people aren't yes, hung, and drawn, and quartered, and they're not... Uh, uh, yeah. Just two weeks ago, we saw The Guardian broke a story about a police station in Chicago where young black men were vanished, just vanished yeah. like CIA, yeah. um, CIA yeah. sites. It's, some emerge and some don't. As well. Yeah, it's um, the, these are methods of terror that still yeah. exist. But also the warfare. huge, absolutely enormous American incarceration system. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely colossal, which includes things like indefinite um, solitary confinement, mm. defined as a form of torture, almost invariably drives people who experience it mad, which include the perpetual risk of rape for males and females, mm. actually. So uh, does that not count? Is that not cruel and unusual? I mean, it may be that we, well, we don't... Uh, hang drawn quarter people we don't uh, hang them up but this colossal and the reason it's relevant is that um, uh, Pinker says as societies go more advanced as they become more technologically and socially developed they become less violent mm. well this doesn't seem to be the case in the most advanced I mean by mm. conventional standards um, uh, a country in the world which is which which is the US so there, there are many counter examples well, it's a lot to think about well thank you very much John Gray no thank you very much for your question you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me Helen Lewis and produced by Anna Leskovitz you can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the underscore orchestra licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.